My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Teresa Maley and Kevin Allen. Calgary is a somewhat newer city than many of the other major cities in Canada, and it is also a distinctively conservative one. And yet, the tides of struggle and profound change in gay, lesbian, bi, and queer lives over the last 50 years, profound even if much less evenly distributed across queer lives than more privileged LGBTQ folks sometimes care to acknowledge, was no less generated from and experienced in queer communities in Calgary than anywhere else in the country. These local manifestations of this history are not, however, well known, within Calgary, or without. Maley and Allen are both involved with the Calgary Gay History Project, a community-based effort to try to change that. Maley is one of its researcher volunteers, and Allen is its research lead and founder. They've been interviewing LGBTQ community elders, poring over archives, both private and public, and bringing their findings to audiences online and in person. They talk with me about how they're doing this work, about what they've found, and about why knowing where you came from is key to facing the struggles yet to come. We spoke by Skype from Calgary. My name's Therese Maley, and I'm one of the researcher volunteers for the Calgary Gay History Project. And my name is Kevin Allen, and I'm the research lead for the Calgary Gay History Project and founder of the project. The Calgary Gay History Project got started in fall 2012, when I was given a small grant from the city to become historian in residence at Calgary Outlink, which is our GLBTQ community center, historically and into the present day. The project has attracted a number of volunteers. This year, we did a Kickstarter campaign, which was successful, and we'll be working on a book to come out in about a year for Pride 2015. I'm a fourth-generation Calgarian on my mother's side, and I was at my parents' house for dinner one Sunday evening, and I asked them a question about what was life like for gay people before I was born in 1970. And my mom joked and said, there were no gay people before you were born. And then my dad later told me that he knew not to go to the Palliser Hotel on Friday afternoons and evenings in particular if he didn't want to mix with gay men in the 60s. And so that got me really interested in the lives of GLBTQ Calgarians in the 50s and 60s. So I applied for this grant to be historian in residence, and lo and behold, I received it. And then that got me really going. I started age profiling people at the 2012 Pride Festival. So if they had gray hair, I'd ask them if they were from Calgary and did they have a story to tell. And eventually... I broke in to our elder community and started doing some oral history and looking in libraries and archives. And then people heard about the project. People like Teresa, who's one of my first volunteers, one of our first volunteers, approached me and said she was interested in working on the project. Teresa's done 
public presentations herself now and research relevant to our website. And there's about six of us now working on our history. I heard about it actually through work. I work for the local library and they were hosting Kevin to come and speak at our main branch downtown. And I heard through the grapevine that he was working on the the history of Calgary's queer community. And I had always been fascinated by history and I had gotten an MA in history. So I thought this is fantastic sounding project because as a native Calgarian as well, I had not really heard very much about the history of the community at all. So I really wanted to sit down and hear what Kevin had to say. And all the fascinating material that he presented on that night at the library got me going. And then he said the magic words at the end, we're looking for help. And so I walked up to him afterwards and introduced myself. And we started to meet and talk about the project. And that's the way it worked out. Tell me more about the kinds of experiences you've had in gathering those stories. How willing are people to tell these stories? And what kinds of things have you heard about that older era? We get a bunch of varied responses to telling the history. There's one response, if I can characterize them into groups, which is really happy to tell and share the story. And it's an unburdening and it's a kind of relief and a validation of people's lives. And something that was interesting to me was it wasn't always hard times. I mean, there was a lot of hardship that people went through in the culture of intimidation that we had in the 50s and 60s, but they also managed to find each other and find community and have some really good times as well. So that's kind of a positive that I wasn't expecting. And then I've also encountered a reaction from elders in our community who have a very glossed over past and I'm a bit suspicious about it sometimes. They claim that nothing ever bad happened to them. There was no discrimination. They lived their lives quietly without any impact. And it could be true. But there is this kind of glazed look whenever I talk about things that might have been difficult. So it's a mixed reaction from different people. The other reaction I also wanted to mention was that People have a lot of personal ownership over the material sometimes, and some people, they also want to share like their boxes and boxes of old body politic or magazine articles, and those people are just incredible to talk to. Some others, however, history is one of these things that can be quite personal to people, especially if they have been marginalized their whole lives or nobody's been interested Some people, like Kevin said, it's an unbirdying, but the other people seem to feel like it's a personal challenge. It's kind of difficult for them to talk about. They don't want you to talk about it. Those people are few and far between, but we also have to kind of approach them with a lot of compassion and understanding because we didn't grow up in that time period and experience what was going on. That's kind of the oral history section. Talking to the elders has been incredible, but with physical archival material, We really rely on the elders of the community a great deal of time to point us in the right direction of their own personal archives that they've kept. And we also have some wonderful resources here in Calgary, Calgary Public Library, Glenbow Museum, City of Calgary Archives. Then we can go outside of the province as well because there's lots of other archives that are popping up everywhere. So getting material about Calgary is easier than one would expect, actually. The majority of any archival material can be in two camps. One, it will be dealing with the actual topic of lesbian, gay, transgendered, queer history in the sense that maybe the person who composed the archive and then donated it to maybe the Glenbow 
was a queer activist and a couple of cases that's happened. But also the stuff in the archives are things that you need to tease out. So you need to go through old newspaper articles and clippings from the time period. We have one researcher right now going through old University of Calgary newspaper articles, going through and seeing anything to do with what was going on in the community at that time period. So you're not just looking for people who were involved in the queer community, but you're also going through just regular everyday newspaper articles and periodicals to see what you can glean from that time period about how people were being treated, what places they went to, what kind of clubs were open, and also what early publications. We have a ton of small newsletters that the early gay and lesbian groups would have. So Lavender Times was put out by Lil, which was the one lesbian group. And then Calgary Gay Men also had, I'm trying to remember, it was Girk originally. And then it was Calgary Gay Lines, and they had their own periodical and their own newsletter. So there's lots of wonderful sources of material. Talk a little bit about... What's specific about Calgary in terms of the history of gay communities, of gay community formation? There's common threads that happened all across the country, different movements within gay history. But one of the things that we were delighted to find was in 1968, the first gay club in Calgary was founded. It was a private members club, which then was replicated in other cities across the country. It was called Club Carousel. And they had literally and figuratively an underground profile. It became a real popular hangout spot in the late 60s and early 70s. In its heyday, had up to 600 members. And they had a capacity of about 300 and would hold wild parties and shakers and amateur theater performances. And they were open three nights a week, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday. Another story which I think is important to tell and is part of Canada's history is the man who changed the law. And the law that Alan is referring to is the law that criminalized sex between men in Canada up until 1969. The man who changed the law in 69 by his Supreme Court case in 67, Everett George Clippert, was actually a Calgarian. He was a Calgary bus driver who was arrested for admitting to having had sex with men in the early 60s and served jail time in Calgary and then moved to the Northwest Territories because he thought he was bringing shame to his family here and was arrested again up in the Northwest Territories. His case went all the way to the Supreme Court who said that he was an incurable sexual offender and he should be incarcerated for life. So that was a very dramatic moment in Canadian human rights history and the source of the famous quote from Pierre Trudeau, the state has no place in the bedrooms of the nation. So those are two Calgary-related stories that we like to touch on in our history. Give me a sense of what you've learned from the oral histories and from the archives in terms of how community formation happened back then, like in the pre-Stonewall, pre-opening of space for some visibility? How did people find each other and how did they create community? That's a good question. In the 50s and 60s, people really socialized privately in their own homes, in their own apartments. I've talked to elders who talk about there was a weekly party Everyone would chip in some money and, you know, you'd get this address and everyone would descend on that house or apartment. So the social groups were really closed. It was hard to break into them to find the queer community. 
or sorry, I should say a gay and lesbian community because queer was pejorative back then. So when I'm talking to the elders, I've learned to watch my language a little bit. And they all had different drinking spots where they had gay, lesbian friendly bartenders. And these spaces were not exclusively for the community, but they were mixed. But kind of a back room would be where the gay men would meet or the lesbians. And so I think people found these communities through word of mouth, right? It was sort of a scandalous, illicit activity that maybe the community at large, like my own father, knew about or heard whispers of. And so that's how people would meet. And once there started to be a bit more space for visibility in the late 60s and in the early 70s, tell me a bit more about the kinds of groups or spaces or organizations that started to form in that new context? There were definite movements in gay history that you see all across the country and was replicated in Calgary. One was the homophile movement in the 50s and 60s. And so that was drinking clubs or going to people's houses. And that's where organizations like the Mattachine Society and the Daughters of the Letus formed. And they were seeking acceptance, but they were also not trying to rock the boat. It wasn't a very sort of activist-oriented political movement. And then the Cultural Revolution happened in the late 60s and early 70s, and things like Stonewall happened in the States. Uh, and Stonewall was a gay bar in New York City where there was a much-celebrated uprising in response to a police raid in 1969, and such raids were very common in that era. In this instance, the patrons of the bar fought back in a, a riot that lasted for several days. This is often noted as a turning point in histories of queer struggle in North America. Things like Stonewall happened in the States. Although it didn't have very much of a profile here in Calgary from the people I've interviewed and the archival records I've looked at. But we saw similar things on our university campus in the early 70s. This idea that there's a student-led gay liberation movement that happened all across campuses in the country. And then political activism started to happen in earnest. And we had the first gay community centers slash social activist groups. Yeah, so they started to get more into actual formation of formal organizations where they actually apply to the province of Alberta for society status. We're not looking at that until at least the late 1960s, early 70s. And again, it was people who were active in the community, not necessarily, I've looked at their files and everything, they weren't necessarily responding to what was going on in the U.S. They kind of looked at their own community and said, hey, it's time for us to start getting a little bit more organized less about just socializing, but also what can we do as groups. So they started a couple of them. What happened was, is you had two separate groups at the time. It was more the gay men's group and then, of course, the women's groups. And so they weren't really together and they didn't really start to come together as activists until the late 1970s, 1980s, supportive of each other, but not always in the same groups. The women's group was very much focused on women's rights to continue to have their children. Lesbians, a lot of the time, were losing access to their children during the 60s and 70s, and up until the 80s and even now. And that was really the focus of the women's groups. And they came out of a very feminist background. And so that was really their political agenda, or at least their political slant. 
For the men, it was usually more quieter, I would say, and Kevin can speak more on that. They were more focused on larger political action. Back in the 70s, I think the women's and men's community were more together. But then women in these organizations felt like their voices weren't being heard. It was not consensus-based decision-making, which they preferred. And they really needed a women-only space to feel safe, secure, and empowered. So GERC was the Gay Information Resources Center. And they formed what we can see informally in about 1967. And then they went to a society status after they had formed, which made sure that they could at least apply for some funding. And that's where they were looking at because their emphasis was trying to create a safe community and get education and a support line going and access to resources. Because we have to remember there's nothing out there at this time period for people who are members of the gay lesbian community. There's nothing. There's no access to information. What you know is what your buddies tell you. Gert kind of looked at that and said, we've got to start getting information out more to people. So they started a support line, which was brilliant and still continues on to this day through their kind of incarnation of Calgary Outlink. Also, the lesbian information line starts at this time so that you know women could phone in and they start putting out their own newsletters. Really, what their emphasis is in Calgary is just getting that information out to people more than anything. They didn't really start to become more human rights activists until the 1980s, where they started all of the groups, and not just these two groups, but also the Royal Court and some of the other groups in Calgary, the softball leagues for the women, the men's Apollo sports, and also some of the bathhouses and bars started to get more politically activated and more politically minded, not until the 1980s, where... They started to have more outreaches and going into the community and talking to everybody in Calgary, period, just trying to get people to understand, you know, just because we're gay and lesbian does not mean I'm not a human being and that I deserve some basic human rights. So some splinter groups were created from that. And ever since then, what the community in Calgary has done is usually they have one type of group that really deals with the political matters, with the human rights stuff. And then the other groups very much focus on information, counseling, support, and also just having a very good time. So I mentioned GERC, and they have now, over the last 30 years, morphed and graded themselves into Calgary Outlink. And I just presented on their history at their 30th birthday party. Outlink is the Center for Gender and Sexual Diversity. Their mission has stayed the same for 30 years, ever since they came out of GERC and the combining of LIL. Their main focus is support services and educational opportunities and trying to make a safe space for people to come to of all backgrounds. There was an organization called CLAGPAG, Calgary Lesbian and Gay Political Action Guild, which formed in 1990, which I think the 90s was the sort of next chapter in gay liberation in Calgary. And that's when we really started to advocate for changes in human rights legislation It's also when society finally took note of the community and there was a backlash. There was a lot of gay bashings at that time in the 90s. There was a social conservative backlash about any kind of cultural funding to LGBTQ content in the arts. We had some high profile theater and visual arts exhibitions, performances that were boycotted. I remember myself walking through picket lines to go see things. 
that went all the way up until 99 with the Delwyn Green case, who was an Alberta school teacher who was fired for sexual orientation. That went all the way to the Supreme Court. And Alberta was screaming and kicking all, all the way. And I guess that happens into the next century, too, because we were the one of the most vocally opposed provinces when it came to same-sex marriage. And it was the vote in the House of Commons in 2005, which changed the law. That's really true, Kevin. And I remember the 90s being quite fraught with tension. There was a lot of gay bashing physically and politically, and it was to extreme levels of harassment for a lot of people. I think that that was very unique to Calgary because that came very late, whereas other places that I've read about, Ottawa, Toronto, Montreal, they seem to go through that backlash a lot earlier than us. It changed a lot by the 2000s, like Kevin said, because of large political change. And are there any instances over those decades of state intervention in community institutions, like something parallel to the bath raids that happened in Toronto in the early 80s, and there were sort of related things that happened around then in Montreal. Was there anything like that that the community in Calgary faced? Yes. Alberta had one of its big bath raids in 81, the Pisces Spa in Edmonton. Like This goes with your thesis, Teresa, this kind of like we're a bit delayed. We had our big bathhouse raid actually in this century, it was like 2002. I, I have to look up the year because my head's right now in the 70s. But it was the last big bathhouse raid in the country. Eventually, the Crown dropped all the charges. But it was the kind of last kick at the police entrapment regime. And this idea that the bathhouse was some kind of offense to community standards the Crown eventually determined that community standards had changed and it shouldn't be happening anymore. So I think we were were kind of like the bookend to maybe some of those early bathhouse raids in other parts of the country. From what I've heard about organizing in a lot of cities, a critical moment in changing the kind of mutual aid that happened and was needed and the kind of political organizing that was needed and, and happened was when the AIDS crisis hit. How did that change both the mutual support kinds of things and the more overtly politicized things happening in the gay community in Calgary. We can't emphasize how dramatic AIDS was when it hit Calgary. It took so many lives. I think it really changed the stakes a little bit for the community. I, I think most of the activism, the shift focused towards aid services and aid support organizations from general political agitation and I also think that in the broader sense that AIDS really brought awareness of the gay community to the larger Canadian population. I think that was somewhat connected to the 90s backlash. People knew in their cities that there were these gay bars and gay communities, but they kind of were all centralized in this one spot. And if you didn't pay attention to it, you could kind of live blissfully unaware of it. But when AIDS hit, all of a sudden, Canadian society had to sit up and take note that there were queers living amongst them. I think that was a huge change, maybe for the world. And what do you think it brings to queer communities today to be doing this work, looking at things that happened decades ago? If we, as a community, a queer community, don't know who we are, and where we came from, and how hard the elders and other trailblazers had to work. It's very hard to fully appreciate, understand, 
and continue to move forward with our community and our activism if we don't understand the last 45 to 50 years. And that's all of history. It also helps you to understand what's happening right now. So an example would be, well, I don't understand why in the province can't we have queer support groups in schools for students? So why is that happening? Well, let's look at the history of schools and why they maybe wouldn't want to do that. Or, you know, the fact that we're in a very conservative province still in that kind of sense of why was there so much backlash in the 90s? To kind of go back and understand, you need to understand what happened in the past, understand what is happening now and where to move forward. But I also think that when we look at queer history, queer culture, any type of history like this of one community, We also have to look at it in the context of what's going on in the whole community around them. So what was Calgary like at these time periods? And that kind of speaks to all Calgarians and all Albertans and all Canadians in saying, let's give this a broader context. What's happening to people on a human rights level during this time period? So by doing this research, we have pathways that we've created for further research So when we're talking about human rights activism, we will talk about what happened in Calgary and how human rights, just being able to marry who you love, was challenged or, you know, supported. So it's a multifaceted project that has legs that will continue to move forward in all types of communities. One I would really like to explore is the impact on immigration. People who want to immigrate here also people who are gay and lesbian, transgendered, queer community members who are, were early immigrants. We don't have their voices because they, for many reasons, had no voice to, to give. So it's not just gay history. It is our history, and it's time for all Calgarians to claim what is rightfully theirs. Tell me about some of the key things coming up for the project in the next six months or a year. The thing that is the most exciting right now is we're working on a book project. We launched a Kickstarter campaign a few weeks ago, and it was more than successfully funded by the community, and we're really grateful and honored by that. Our ambitious deadline is to have the book done in a year for Pride 2015, which is also the 25th anniversary of Pride Calgary. And it's my hope that the project lives on in a lot of different forms, that we actually create a research community of interest around this and using the website and the research collective as our going forward body. We'd like this to continue for years and years, maybe decades. We're collecting artifacts, uh, papers, ephemera from community members, and we are looking at different institutions in the city to partner with to create an actual queer archives. You have been listening to my interview with Teresa Maley and Kevin Allen of the Calgary Gay History Project. To learn more about their work, go to calgaryqueerhistory.ca. That's all one word, calgaryqueerhistory.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked Radio. That's TalkingRadical.ca. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. (laughs) 